Now fast forward to COVID-19, the situation we're in now, and you can only imagine with children now doing more online, spending more time online, possibly in some environments having less uh, oversight and scrutiny because parents are busy, they're trying to juggle, some of them work as well as family commitments, etc. You can imagine now why those risks to children are significantly exacerbated. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about COVID-19 and the increased risk it presents to children, violence against children specifically. And we have a wonderful guest on board, Howard Taylor, who is the executive director of the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children. It's a public-private partnership launched by the UN Secretary General back in 2016. And on its board sits some remarkable individuals, including the head of UNICEF and the head of the World Health Organization, amongst others. So truly interesting outfit with a global reach and Howard, welcome on to the Do One Better podcast. Alberto, thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to the conversation. Well, here we are. I know you're locked away in your house in the US. I'm here locked away in mine in London. And uh, it's a little bit of a surreal state of affairs with COVID-19 and this global pandemic. And people think about the health implications directly posed by this uh, virus. But obviously, children, domestic violence, uh, their well-being is at an increased risk right now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children, and then let's delve into some of the challenges presented by COVID-19. Great. Thanks, Alberto. I mean, the, the partnership was, as you mentioned, launched by the UN Secretary General in 2016. So we're a little under, under four years old. And really, as an innovative public-private partnership, the intention of bringing the partners together was to catalyze and support action to end all forms of violence, abuse, and neglect of children. And the agenda, the timeline is by 2030 as part of the Sustainable Development Goals. So that was how and when we were launched back in 2016. Fast forward, as I say, nearly four years old right now. Uh, we have over 400 member organizations, that's governments, it's uh, civil society organizations, faith groups, corporations, uh, academic institutions, and others. And between us, what we are trying to collectively do with regards to the agenda of ending violence against children is to raise awareness, catalyze commitments, leadership commitments, mobilize the resources, promote evidence-based solutions, and support those who are working at the front line to tackle all forms of violence, abuse, and neglected children. Amazing. And you used to head up the Nike Foundation. You have a long track record in, the, uh, in this field. I did. I, had, I was for about 14 or 15 years, I was in the British government, primarily working on international development and foreign policy, largely in, in the UK Department for International Development, known by those who, who know it as DFID. Mm -hmm. um, and I had great experiences with DFID. I worked for two or three different secretaries of state, um, and I had the privilege to spend time overseas in India and also in Ethiopia, running the, the UK government's development programs in, the, in those countries. And then I made a, a move uh, which was uh, unexpected, I think, by, by friends and colleagues and maybe uh -huh. family, 
I stepped out of the UK government. An opportunity came up out of the blue um, for me to get involved with the Nike Foundation. Uh, and the reason I made that move to move across to the west coast of the US and work with Nike and the Nike Foundation was a particular initiative um, called Girl Effect. Mm-hmm. And Girl Effect uh, was really all about using the things that Nike does so well, marketing, branding, communications, and taking those things and applying them to a social issue. In this case, the issue of adolescent girls, based on evidence that shows very clearly that if you can give a girl a trajectory through adolescence, that she is healthy, she is safe, she is educated, she has friends, etc., that will not just change her trajectory for life as a citizen in the economy and society, but as the future mother of further children, it will change their trajectory too. And so I made that, that move across to Nike uh, some years ago, uh, was involved with, with the foundation. Girl Effect was the major initiative of the foundation. It then had been going, I guess, about 10 years or so within Nike, and we saw the need and the opportunity to actually spin it out of Nike. And so I was then closely involved as an architect of uh, Spinning Out Girl Effect, which is now a separate entity with offices in London, Africa and elsewhere. Fascinating. Fascinating. And here you are today running the uh, Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children. Before I forget, please, what is your website address? It is www.end-violence.org. Great. And the reason I'm asking from the outset is because uh, as I was doing research for today's conversation with you, I noticed that is, there is an immense body of knowledge being curated by your organization on your website. I think some of those 400 partners, you're acting as a focal point of truly invaluable information specifically targeted to, uh, to ensure that children are, are protected, are nurtured during this period of uncertainty with COVID-19. That's absolutely right. Our role, um, an hour a bit referring to the team I, I lead, which is a small secretariat to this partnership of 400 organizations. And some of them, as you mentioned earlier, with regard to some of the board members, are very large UN agencies, governments, uh, and uh, CSO, civil society organizations, often with multi-country or global reach. And so our role really is to listen, to see, to understand the needs of our partners. We do that in regular time. Um, and obviously, in the context of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, there's an even higher premium on that right now because everyone in our community and that community really goes across many sectors because it takes many sectors to effectively protect children and, and end violence against them. It takes health, it takes education, social services and, and others. And what we try and do is bring together, convene, to communicate, to consolidate the information and making sure that the right information um, is getting out to those who need it. So I'd, I'd say right now uh, what it feels from where we sit, um, and I don't know whether we're sort of sitting looking down at a network or we're at the center, we're certainly part of a very large network um, of, of fabulous organizations. I'd say three or four things right now. Firstly, that the risks that children face right now with regards to violence and abuse are not new risks, but they're exacerbated risks. Mm-hmm. And those risks are, are ex- exacerbated because of the high stress in domestic environments, because of confinement, isolation, job loss, etc. And of course, the overwhelming uh, concerns around COVID. But also online, because children are doing much more online and are spending much more time online. So as I say, these aren't new risks. But the first thing to say, I think, is that children right now face exacerbated risks. And related to that, therefore, what we are trying to orchestrate with and through our partners as a collective advocacy voice, if you like, as well as action, 
is to advocate for child protection to be embedded in the prevention and the responses to COVID-19 that governments around the world are leading on, which is obviously the first, uh, the first priority is and has and must have been and must be focusing on COVID-19 itself, stopping the spread of the virus, et cetera, and dealing with people who have unfortunately contracted the virus. But now I think as we start to look at the economic impact, we start to look at some of the other impacts, it's really important when we think about violence and abuse of children that the government's putting those plans, those prevention plans, but also response plans together are taking child protection seriously uh, and embedding that in the plan. Related to that is making sure that child protection services continue to be seen as essential services and also get resourced appropriately. So the risks children face are exacerbated. Child protection and those who do work in child protection must be embedded in the, in, in the COVID prevention and response plans. And then we must, between us, get the right evidence-based advice to parents, caregivers, and children themselves. And I deliberately say evidence-based because there's a lot of information sloshing around out there. Uh, and the privilege we have working with organizations like UNICEF, WHO, the US Centers for Disease Control, and a bunch of fantastic uh, international civil society organizations, academic institutions, and others, is to draw on a wealth of experience, which is based on data, it's based on evidence, it's based on what we know works. And the trick and the key and the challenge right now is packaging that information in a way um, that is reaching the right audiences with the right messages in a timely fashion, um, equipping parents, equipping caregivers, and then in some instances, children themselves uh, to stay safe. Absolutely right. I think evidence-based is exactly the right thing to say. Like you pointed out, there is just so much stuff out there right now. Uh, it's sort of like a, it's an interesting label, COVID-19. A, a lot of information goes out there, but it's uh, a lot of it is of questionable uh, origins. What are some of the things that, um, that you're seeing right now? It's a new situation. How are you finding that your partners, the governments that you're involved with are reacting? Are, are, are things progressing as you would have expected in a period of crisis like this? Or are some things being flagged up that were A, unexpected and B, unsettling? Yeah, great question. I think it's a little too early to tell. And I don't say that as a way of dodging the question. But I think that because countries are at different stages of, of the impact of COVID, different stages of their, of their response in many countries, obviously, there's full or partial lockdown of sorts. I think it's manifesting and playing out in different ways into a different timeline in, in different countries. So I think really the urgency right now is to make sure that whatever stage those governments are at, um, that they're taking this issue seriously uh, and protecting children who otherwise are going to be worse off with regards to violence, uh, abuse and neglect in the current crisis. But also the issues of violence, abuse and neglect, if they're happening to you, they don't simply stop when COVID-19 goes away, there's a vaccine, life returns to a different kind of normal at some point in the future. Um, so, you know, damage done to children now through experiencing or observing actually violence, abuse and neglect can have very long, long run implications for, the, for those children. Um, what we are seeing, and maybe I'll just pick on, on one particular area because mm -hmm. there are so many forms of violence. And, and our remit as a global partnership working with these many partners is, is to help them 
drive action, as I mentioned earlier, to end all forms of violence, abuse and neglect. That's violence that happens at home, it happens at school, it's online, it's in communities. It's everything from physical violence, emotional violence, psychological violence. So you can imagine how widespread that is. And so I'll speak to just one aspect and sure. one one element. And, and that's really the, the on, I'll speak to the online piece, because one, one of the, you know, I mentioned there are two, two particular areas. One is around increased domestic stress right now and how that can lead to sort of physical, emotional, psychological violence and sexual abuse. But the online piece particularly, because so many children, I think it's about one and a half billion children mm-hmm. um, who were previously in school and now out of school. A lot, a lot of those children, not all of them, but many of them have moved online with their learning. But our, our whole lives, as you know, as adults, not just, just children, are being lived out largely online now in a way that they weren't, weren't to that extreme before. Um, and so children are doing more online and they're spending more time online. And just to give you a couple of pre-COVID uh, data points, which gives you a sense of the issue and why the risk is now exacerbated. In 2019, there were 70 million, that's seven zero million pieces of child sexual abuse material reported to authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a growth from the previous years. Uh, we also know that, and this is an estimate, uh, but it's an evidence-based estimate, that at any one time, there are as many as three quarters of a million adults online looking to uh, connect with children for sexual purposes, i.e. they are perpetrators, predators online, looking for children, sometimes working in organized groups and gangs to actually do that. Um, And I share those two particular facts about there's always a risk online to children if they're not safe and protected and know how to keep themselves safe and have the right safeguards in place from their parents and those around them. And there is a huge amount and an explosion in growth in recent years in the amount of, of images and videos of children um, being sexually abused online. Now, that's at one extreme of what's happening. I'm also well aware that there's everything through from cyberbullying um, to sexting, et cetera. And I wouldn't want to, to belittle those by talking about the more extreme forms, but I just wanted to share that data on those extremes because th- those two data points are from 2019. So now fast forward to COVID-19, the situation we're in now, um, and you can only imagine with children now doing more online, spending more time online, possibly in some environments having less uh, oversight and scrutiny because parents are busy, they're trying to juggle, Mm -hmm. some of them work as well as family commitments, et cetera. You can imagine now why those risks to children are significantly exacerbated, those online risks of what children are doing. And so I guess one of the headline questions in all of that is making sure that parents and caregivers actually know what their children are doing online. And then we've worked with our partners to prepare a whole bunch of sort of tips for parents and others of keeping children safe online. Um, Maybe I'll just add one other thing here, but it's not just about getting advice to parents and caregivers and children. Um, and obviously you need to sort of figure out within those different audiences how you appropriately message, et cetera, in a compelling and informational way. There is also uh, a role to play here for technology companies and telecoms companies. Uh, and I think it's really important just to just to call that out because there are certain things they can do with regards to making their platforms, their social media or learning platforms and their communications platforms as safe as possible. They can also be um, pushing out child online safety messages um, to the parents and children who are on their platforms. And then there's a third area of work that they can do, always do more, I think, to step up in terms of detecting and then disrupting and stopping the harmful activity that's going on. Mm. How receptive do you find these, um, these global tech companies are to, uh, to some of these um, requests, as it were? They are receptive. Um, and I think it's a, it's a journey. And I think that, you know, there are some very big issues at play here 
where you have agendas of privacy and security and freedom of expression, et cetera, that play across in different in different uh, uh, jurisdictions around the world. So another point to note, actually, is obviously that this is a truly global issue. When you're thinking about violence that happens in a house, it's happening and domestically, it's happening in a particular place, whereas the online risks to children are, are truly global. Um, and so the, the tech companies are involved. They are part of um, networks such as the We Protect Global Alliance, which is one of the leading networks, um, organizations globally, which promotes something called a model national response. I believe that 80 or more governments have signed up to that. It's a sort of codification of take these steps and you'll have a good chance at actually making your internet and the, and the, uh, the laws, et cetera, around it as safe as possible for all of your citizens, including, including children. So the tech companies are involved in initiatives like that. I've been involved with, with tech companies in, in the US and elsewhere in hackathons, uh, which look at both tech fixes, but also communications fixes. They look at legal and, and practical issues. So I would say that every, every agency, regardless of sector, can almost always do more, whether you're a government or a tech company or a telecoms company, uh, and then some of the international organizations and experts which exist to support that. So I think we're at a moment where, um, even pre-COVID, that obviously the explosion of, of, of access online, I think the figures are um, as many as seven or 800,000 children come online every day for the first time. That was a, anyway, that was a pre-COVID pre figure. So we're just making sure that all the children who are already online, but also all those who are coming online for the first time and now all those doing much more online uh, are being kept safe. There's absolutely a role for the tech companies uh, and telecoms companies. Could they do more? Yes, they could. But so could governments and so could others. Mm. When you have 1.5 billion children staying at home instead of being in school, there's a lack of access to school friends, to teachers, to social workers and, uh, you know, the safe space and services that schools provide. That's a really important point because that then gets you into the normal environment of children and adults that, that children would have around them um, who, you know, can, are sometimes part of that protection, that broader sort of community of protection around them. So just thinking through who does a child report to? Sometimes a child may feel unsafe at home, whether that's for whatever form of violence or abuse, but may feel safe, you know, talking to a teacher about it or talking to a friend. Um, and, and, and between them, they might work out um, what, what the right approach is. So I think that uh, looking at the way that children are able to report safely online, the way that children use helplines, um, which again, all of these things pre-exist the crisis, but looking afresh at what are the implications um, for, for helplines, et cetera. There are some great organizations out there who run helplines uh, for children um, and looking at the utility of those in this particular situation. And of course, absolutely making sure that whatever the means that children have to connect with other adults and you know, if they are experiencing a problem or if they want to learn, they want information, that they are able to identify you know, the right sources. But if, if there is a report of violence or abuse against children by a child or by someone else, there, of course, has to be some kind of response to that, which goes back to my earlier point about making sure that child protection is woven into the prevention and response plans that governments have putting together and which clearly continue to evolve during during COVID-19. Um, mm -hmm. So that if children are, are able to uh, and, and report something that they're concerned or they're experiencing or observing, that there is then still a mechanism for that to be followed up on. Yeah. What about the... Um well, those really most vulnerable children, uh, including refugees, migrants, uh, displaced, or what's the state of affairs there? Because obviously you have kids who are living without any parental care, are on the street, uh, urban slums with disabilities. There's just so many things right now that 
on a good day are are incredibly challenging never mind with covid-19 as the uh, backdrop yeah thanks for mentioning that because i think it's absolutely right and it's always you know i've given some very big sort of broad figures about online or about you know i could speak to the 1 billion children globally every year who experience some kind of violence abuse and neglect and always within those 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 really big figures i think there's two things to re- to remember one is that um, this is not just big data. This is each individual child experiencing often quite horrific and ongoing violence or abuse or neglect. And we have to always remember, you know, we have to remember the individual child and put in place the systems and, and respond, prevention and responses to, to help the individual child. Um, I'll come back to the, big, the, the, the enormity of the issue later on. But mm. firstly, just remember, these are people. Um, and secondly, uh, within, the, within those large numbers, there are, of course, always subgroups who are more vulnerable. We usually always see, and, and many issues, and violence is not different, um, that there's a gender dimension. So girls are usually much more uh, at risk of various forms of violence than boys are. And we see that in the prevalence figures from around the world. We see the same for disabled children. We see the same for children, as some of who you mentioned, whether they're migrants or um, uh, in an institution or refugees, don't have parental care, et cetera. Um, so again, those very same organizations and agencies who we work with uh, and support are doing all they can you know, and, and transitioning from what they would normally be doing uh, to the implications of COVID-19, try, still trying to reach and prevent violence, abuse and neglect and respond to it among those populations as well. I can't pretend it's easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously some children living in conflict environments, some in other natural disaster environments, some are di- displaced, etc. Um, but the efforts that the UN agencies, the international NGOs, uh, and governments themselves are continuing to do for those various populations uh, ongoing as best they can be in the current situation. And of course, we shouldn't forget that those populations of children themselves are, are also at risk of COVID-19. Um, I know there's, you know, we've all seen the data globally around what seems to be um, a sort of different prevalence depending on, on age group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, these are children who are already living in a very vulnerable situation, they themselves maybe, you know, are, are likely to be physically as well as emotionally and psychologically more vulnerable than than other children in different situations. Very difficult. Very, very difficult. How are you coping internally um, or organizationally or strategically? So I imagine you probably started tracking this like all of us at early January. It doesn't hurt to have the head of the WHO on your board or the head of UNICEF on your board. How did everything spring into action? You, the, you know, as executive director, give us a little bit of insight in terms of what you've had to uh, cope with and what you've had to do to, uh, to adapt and, and react to, uh, to this new reality. The first thing to say, and it's a personal reflection, is, you know, well, first of all, we have a great team. We have a team mm-hmm. of about 25 people based largely in, in the U.S., some in Geneva and a couple elsewhere um, in, in the secretariat to this global partnership. Um, and it's a great team. And many or most of the team have worked for some time in social impact, in international development, etc. And I share that because none of us in any sector, I guess, have ever worked in and through a pandemic, a truly global pandemic of this nature. And so my first reflection is that actually um, many of us have worked, you know, in and on various crises, whether it's been earthquakes or tsunamis or conflicts. But what's different about COVID-19 is we are not just working in the response in our sort of mission-driven business, if you like, in terms of keeping children safe uh, as part of COVID-19 response, but it's also affecting us all individually. 
So obviously we're all remote working. That's been in place now for a few weeks and will continue uh, for the foreseeable future um, with varied implications for individual members of the team. And I guess every organization is having to manage that and to flex and support as best we can. Um, but each of us is being differentially affected through our friends, through our family networks, et cetera, where the impact, either the direct health impacts of COVID, the economic impacts, other um, psychological impacts of isolation or confinement, et cetera, um, are playing out in different ways. So my, my first reflection really with regards to the team is that despite the, the wealth of experience we have between us in working um, in responses to uh, epidemic outbreaks or natural or man-made disasters, conflicts, crises over many years in many places, this one feels qualitatively different because we're both in it and we're trying to do the best for our business as well as for ourselves, our families and our friends. Um, Secondly, I, I, maybe this should have been my first point, the team is doing a great job because under that pressure, under the pressure that I just described of juggling with the need to, to, to step up and be here to support and to service the partnership and the 400 member organizations that we have so they can continue to get that information, advice and support to children wherever they are. Um, we are doing that alongside juggling, juggling the personal or domestic, et cetera, ourselves. And so just recognizing the great job uh, that the team is doing. I guess then with the work, and we've talked a lot about some, some aspects of the work today, I think like everybody, you know, we, it's hard to put an exact date at when we saw this coming, um, certainly many weeks ago. Um, and I, I guess like many organizations, we started to do some scenario thinking um, and contingency planning for what this would look like. And so we're in the midst of that right now. We're closely involved with our governing bodies, with our board, with our, with our executive committee about you know, the impact for the work itself now in the short term and what, what does ending violence for children look like during COVID-19. But also because none of us know quite how lockdowns will unwind or COVID will eventually, um, will eventually go when a vaccine will be ready, et cetera. Really starting to think about the next 18 months and beyond and about what is going to be needed, what is going to be possible, and what is going to be practical, and how do we go about that with and through our partners. So we're kind of in the midst of that right now. I'd say the first, the early weeks really have been about moving the team to remote working, making sure the team is supported and safe and, and flexes where necessary, and also is taking care of themselves and those around them. Then the, crisis, the sort of initial crisis response, if you like, which is a lot of the advice and information, the technical groups we've been part of with partners uh, and sharing that information and advice. Um, and now I think we're into the next phase. That will continue. But the next phase building on that is, as I just described, starting to think about um, the medium and longer run uh, and what that means for all of us in the partnership and how, what, what's going to be possible, what's going to be practical uh, and what's going to be necessary for children. Are you finding governments, uh, your, your, your government partners, uh, receptive to the messages that you're, um, that you're projecting? Yes, very much so. Very much so. And, and we have governments uh, involved in the partnership in different ways. Some are, uh, some are our donors, some are involved in our governance, others are um, involved because they have taken a leadership commitment to end all violence against children by 2030. And still others have signed up to uh, a, a call to action to make schools safe for children. So each element of the work is now sort of evolving. The school's work is looking at, okay, many children now aren't in schools. Uh, so what does it mean to keep them safe in their current learning environment? We also have a fund. So it's an M-Violence Partnership and Fund. The fund has made significant investments over the last few years, particularly to address child online safety, um, but also for children in, in uh, humanitarian sort of areas of conflict and crisis. Um, 
And with, with that, what we're doing is, as many organizations are reaching out to all of the grantees, understanding you know, what they see the local needs on the ground in their countries are, what the implications are for the work that we've funded them to do, uh, and what it means for them both work-wise, but also organizationally. So we're also in that stage of, of, of reaching out. We've also uh, reached out to, to many of the governments, well, I guess actually probably all of the governments now involved in the partnership in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're trying to do is to sort of hear, listen to and learn from them. We're not just communicating one way. We're trying to listen. We're trying to learn and, and with them and collectively figure out you know, try and stay maybe not ahead of the th ahead of things, but certainly as things evolve, that we can be sufficiently responsive to the evolving needs of the sure, different partners. Sure. And tell me about this fund. Is it a fund that anybody can support? Any philanthropist who is so inclined can can go ahead and uh, reach out to you and and uh, get involved, or is it only for larger foundations and governments? No, anyone, anyone can, uh, any organization, any fund, foundation, government, etc. can can contribute to it. And actually, over the first four years of the fund, the contributions have come from governments and uh, foundations predominantly. Mm -hmm. um, so that and it's it's as I say, it's 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 been focused predominantly in the online space, also the humanitarian space. Uh, in, in the early years. We're going through a little bit of a refresh right now, which began obviously before COVID. And so we're now looking afresh at, um, you know, what are the needs? And one of those needs, it's not the only need, but there is a resource gap. So even pre-COVID, obviously, there is a resource gap, frankly, a huge mismatch between uh, the billion children every year who experience violence, abuse and neglect and the resources globally that go into that. So we have been advocating for some time for additional resources. Um, and we hope in the future to be able to make a more compelling investment case. And maybe just to mention that, because, you know, mm -hmm. I, I sort of I sort of go around saying that ending violence against children is right. It's smart and it's possible. The right bit, I think, doesn't need unpacking. You know, it's his violence and abuse of kids. Therefore, it is I mean, it's right thing to do to actually prevent that and respond to it. But it's a smart investment to make. And that goes back to the big the big data, the big numbers I mentioned earlier. A billion kids globally every year experiencing violence, abuse and neglect, it may, makes it a smart investment to make. Because if you don't tackle um, at scale violence, abuse and neglect, it undermines all your other investments in children, in their education, in their broader health, in their own personal development. And often with multi-year, sometimes lifelong and intergenerational consequences as well, mm. uh, with significant economic impact. Some folks have done analysis which rolls up to a trillion dollars a year globally. Uh, being the uh, the economic impact of the, that extent of violence, abuse and neglect against children. So it's the right thing to do. It's a smart investment to make. And the possible bit really comes from what I mentioned earlier, which is the evidence-based best, best practice. You know, the, the community of practitioners in this space, we don't have all the answers. And the world is clearly constantly changing and evolving around us. Look at, hence, this conversation and COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, we know enough about what works. There's a set of strategies um, which many of those agencies, the UN agencies, the US Centers for Disease Control uh, and others came together um, three or four years ago and put together called INSPIRE. INSPIRE is an acronym. I won't, in the interest of time, unpack every letter of INSPIRE right now. You, 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 um, but but it's, it's an evidence-based package. Uh, it's constantly evolving and improving according to new evidence and learning that comes in. And we play a role as a partnership with our sort of knowledge work, trying to make sure that we contribute to that, that global body of, of evidence and knowledge. Um, but Inspire is probably the best example of a comprehensive set of strategies, uh, which if, if adopted, if followed, if resourced and implemented, um, give you a good shot at ending, ending violence against children. So, yeah, I, as I say, my mantra is quite often that ending violence is right, it's smart investment and it's possible. 
Absolutely. You're here. And tell me, success for the next 10 years as we reach the uh, Sustainable Development Goals uh, 2030, what would we, if we were having a coffee in 10 years' time and looking back, what would you like to say, wow, we did this? So the commitment, as you mentioned, with regards to the Sustainable Development Goals is we had 190 odd, 193 government leaders stood up um, uh, in 2015 and committed to the Sustainable Development Goals, which included a target. And for those who who like the details, it's SDG Mm. 16.2, which is the target um, around which we then were launched as a partnership to end all violence, abuse and neglect of children. So 193 global leaders made that commitment. Um, What we must all do is hold them to account for that commitment, but also support them with the evidence, with the resources, with the action to deliver on that commitment. Um, We're trying to get to zero by 2030. I think it can be done. And therefore, frankly, like many things, it's a choice. Um, It's a political choice. It's a leadership choice, et cetera. But it's not just the political leaders. They really matter, but it's leadership at every level, Um, whether it's different sectors, whether it's community leadership or otherwise family leadership. um, It can be done and it's a choice. Um, And so I think what we're in the the, the foothills right now um, of laying the foundations um, for what we hope will be accelerated change towards that, towards that zero, towards zero violence, abuse and neglect against children. Um, and I, I, when I mean the found, laying the foundations and the foothills, it's, it's putting in place, you know, based off these evidence-based strategies, raising awareness, promoting those strategies, um, you know, enabling access to resources, technical, financial and otherwise, um, But actually, what you're really talking about here is societal change. This is a sort of new normal that you would be talking about emerging, which is why there are many practical and technical things that we are, the partnership, our partners are doing day day after day all over the world. Um, And I think if you drew this out in an unscientific curve of some sort, it would show that you're kind of making some progress now. But actually, what you're really trying to build is the foundations for systemic change, a scale change. And therefore, once you've got the the right building blocks in place over the coming years, you would hope to see um, the graph is a prevalence graph of violence that would be coming down and the curve would be steepening um, as in coming down more sharply in in the outer years of this 15 year sustainable development goal period, of which we now only have uh, a little over 10 years left. Um, so I think the ambition has to remain to do all we can to get to zero. I think we have to be honest that it's a choice. It can be done, but it's a choice about priorities and resourcing and leadership. Um, and our role uh, as a secretariat with and through our partners is to make that compelling case to, you know, build on the, on the rights-based case, make the investment case. So leaders in every sector see that it's not just the right thing to do. It is a smart investment to make, share the evidence so they know that it can be done. So this isn't a council of despair. It's not a council of a huge number. How on earth do we address this issue across multiple sectors? But just to be patiently working away um, based on the evidence and the investment case to make the case for this and getting the work done building those foundations towards a, an accelerated decline in violence, abuse and neglect by 2030. Absolutely, absolutely. Both an economic and moral imperative, I would say. And the SDGs 2030, it really is just around the corner. So the clock is ticking. Tell me, what's the um, key takeaway? What key takeaway might you have for our listeners once they finish listening to, the, to today's episode? What would you like them to keep in mind? 
I guess a couple of things. I think one one to say that we can, and that's the global we, but we can and must do more to protect children during COVID-19. Some of the things I've mentioned, many of the things which are on our website, which I mentioned earlier. Um, so first of all, we can and must do more to protect children in, in during COVID-19. And then secondly, I think to have um, an optimism that uh, coming out of COVID, the world isn't going to be the same as it was before. Um, and so what's it going to look like to build back differently? Um, whether that's around the level of a consciousness and awareness of the issue, whether it's around action that's taken to address the issue of violence and abuse of children. Um, but I think do more now um, and in doing so, be more aware and then let's build back differently um, as we as we come out of this crisis to whatever the next the next new normal is going to look like for children all over the world, and leveraging that raised awareness, which we which may be a byproduct of uh, of the crisis, um, leveraging that and other actions to build build back differently, um, and you know accelerate I guess the pace of laying those foundations I mentioned earlier to to bring the prevalence of violence against children down. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Howard, look, thank you so very much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And truly, you have your work cut out for you uh, with COVID-19 and protecting children, making sure that they're all safe. So I wish you continued success and indeed success uh, to make all of this happen. Um, it's, a, it's a big job and, uh, and I wish you good luck with that. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in as always. You're always very much appreciated. Please subscribe. Please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference for us. Howard, really, once again, thank you so very much. It's been great. It's been great. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thanks, Alberto. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.